Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Good afternoon and welcome to Engage for Success Radio show number 452, how to ensure motivation, productivity and retention of staff. Today we're going to be talking about how to ensure Great motivation, productivity, and staff attention. As I said, I'm Joe Dodds, your host for today. I'm an engagement consultant working within the Engage for Success core team. The Engage for Success movement is an inclusive movement committed to the idea that there is a better way to work by releasing more of the capability and potential of people at work. We spread the word about employee engagement and shine a light on good practice, inspiring people and workplaces to thrive. And we're widely supported across the UK involving the public, private and third sectors. If you go to our website, which is engageforsuccess.org, you can use the link at the bottom of the page to join our newsletter list. And all our social media links are there too. Today is Dan Hill, author, speaker and podcast host. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining me. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to it, Joe. Oh. Lovely. We have a bit of a delay. I thought that you weren't there, but you are. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start by you telling us a bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So about 20 years ago, someone at uh, IBM changed my life. They sent over an article about the breakthroughs in brain science and how much we are sensory, emotional, intuitive decision makers and actors in our own lives. And I was absolutely fascinated to know that 95% plus of our mental activity is not fully conscious, really changes the game around the notion that we are rational actors in the workplace and for that matter in the marketplace. So I started to investigate ways to uh, explore this and put the metrics around it, found a tool called facial coding, which allowed me to capture and quantify people's emotional response based on their facial expressions and have over the last 20 years not only done 10 books, but have done work for more than half the world's top 100 B2C companies. Wow. That's good to know and good to have you here, Dan. Let's let's start a bit by talking um, about the emotion side of business that you've talked about um, and how important it is within organizations for people to sort of understand that. And one of the areas I know that you you talk about a lot is is to do with trust. So tell me a bit more about uh, how important it is and and what people know and don't know about the whole concept. Because as you say, I still think there's lots lots of business owners who perhaps um, have emotion in 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 the business world. Sure. Well, I'm I'm fond of the statement someone once made that there are two currencies in business. I suppose in the England you'd say it was pounds and emotions, and the America would say it's dollars and emotions. And the truth of the matter is, a lot of people, including those in leadership positions, are to a shocking extent, uh, I guess I'd have to say, emotionally illiterate, that they do really understand this currency at all. So if we go specifically to trust. Uh, you know, one of the cliches is, of course, trust is the emotion of business, but it's a cliche for a reason. It's it's very much true. If I don't have trust, I don't have buy-in, I don't have acceptance, 
I don't have a chance for, for loyalty and making this whole thing work. Um, you know, c- kind of the role of emotions in business started with the idea of customer satisfaction. And, and that's good short term, but the long term game involves trust. And perhaps the best model out there to understand emotions is Robert Plutchik's emotion color wheel. And if you look at it, you would see that trust is on one side of the spectrum and its opposite are two emotions that are really important to keep in mind. One is disgust and the other one is contempt. Now, disgust means something smells bad, tastes bad. Uh, For instance, in facial coating terms, our nose tends to wrinkle, our upper lip will flare if we're trying to get away from something. To have an impulse to want to get away from something is obviously not conducive to workplace congeniality and collaboration and innovation and all the things that companies are looking for. Mm -hmm. It means you're trying to back off as if you've been poisoned by something. And I think that on a kind of intuitive uh, behavioral basis, disgust is important to keep in mind. Maybe even worse is contempt, which I think adds an attitudinal element to it. Uh, if anyone's ever read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's bestseller, Blink, they know that uh, uh, there's something called the Love Lab at the University of Washington, Seattle. And they use facial coding and marriage counseling. And they found that uh, they have about a 90% accuracy rate with 15 minutes of videotaped uh, uh, interchanges that are facially coded. And contempt is the most reliable indicator that the marriage will end. Because contempt means I don't trust you, I don't respect you, and I find you beneath me. So it's it's very corrosive, and it's something that kind of develops over time. So you can call it an emotion, but it's really almost like an attitude that that, uh, festers over time. So to keep trust means you have to try to keep away from or alleviate uh, those instances, sadly enough, where uh, disgust and contempt enters the relationship. Could be between colleagues, could be between a manager uh, and staff, could be uh, staff uh, regarding leadership of a company. Uh, But these are dynamics that I think people glide over way too often. It seems that we tend to emphasize happiness by itself or sometimes we have bullying managers and then we have anger in the workplace. But there's these two other emotions, uh, disgust and contempt, that are really important. I think the other thing that sort of fits into that from my perspective is how often when something starts to go wrong or or an employee has a a problem in the workplace, has a a poor view of the, the employer, that it just sort of builds on itself all the time. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And um, a good example I, I mentioned on the show last week, I'm camping in the middle of a field at the moment. <laughs> um, it's a camping <laughs> caravan and club in the UK. And um, there's various groups on Facebook where they talk about various things. And there's, there's a, an event coming up soon which has replaced a, an old well-loved event. And it's a bit more expensive than uh, previous events. And I was talking to my cousin the other day and saying that every time anyone mentions this new event, everyone jumps in and talks about how expensive it is. And it sort of has become like a a mantra. It's almost like people have, have had such an issue with it that it becomes more of an issue and then it becomes more, even more of an issue and there's no coming back from it. And it just reminded me of the workplace, that the same thing that can happen there. Some people have a bad experience and then every time the company tries to do something, even with 
the best of intentions, the employees tend to view it as a negative thing and see all the potential downsides to it rather than the upsides. And I guess that's where that sort of contempt grows and, and just gets worse. Yeah, I think it's it's possible to come back from disgust because I think it's a little bit more immediate. There's something specific that was done. I, I think that contempt is the more dangerous of the two because it does build over time. Uh, emotions are very contagious. Uh, they can also have a momentum to them or a negative momentum to them. And so it gets hard to to arrest. And uh, you really only have two choices. You can start to go dig into the roots of what's you know, manifesting or creating this problem, or you can pretend as if it doesn't exist, but I think it's going to swallow you in the end. And when it does swallow you and the culture and the, the whole workplace productivity, uh, then you're going to know about it because you, you've really got uh, a lot of people who are going to abandon ship um, and just mm. you know, woefully low levels of performance. Mm-hmm. So it's been said that the pandemic and the, the lockdown and people working from their homes uh, in many cases has has sort of allowed organizations to see more of people's lives and, and perhaps potentially drive some improvements in in uh with between sort of management and and employees but also we're now going through this period of time that's been talked about as the the great resignation um or i think you've used the term the great reshuffle uh which seems to have come from I would say quite a lot of navel gazing during uh, that period of time, uh, and people sort of making different choices. Um, what what have you seen? What are your thoughts on on why that's happening, and 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 you know what companies can do to 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 stop that happening? Sure. Well, first of all, I liked how you phrased or led into the question because I do think in some ways the uh, you know the great resignation, the great reshuffle, all of that has is part of that navel gazing has made us at least look around and be more self-aware and uh, a little bit more accepting our vulnerabilities. Uh, maybe at best it's made us a bit more, more human in our interactions, a little less transactional. Um, but I think if you go back to the, the great reshuffle, and I'll use that term because most people who leave a job are going to have to go find another one and move on to something else, or that was their intent all along. They don't have the, the means to retire at this point. Although some of the great, uh, you know, uh, resignation has involved people just prematurely choosing to end their careers if they're financially well enough off. I think most analysts would agree there's three reasons this has really been driving people. One is they've just had a raw deal for a long time at work. Um, you know, the assignments, the pay, the benefits, uh, the hours involved, uh, they just never liked it. They've put up with it for a long time. And now they see maybe there's an opportunity to jump ship. Maybe they can get a better pay, better deal someplace else. Uh, it's also that if they were dubbed a, as we said in America, an essential worker, but they didn't feel very essential, uh, that can really rub them the wrong way and motivate them to move on. The, the second one is part of this festering wound that we've been talking about is whether it's at the department level or the corporate culture level, they just decided they've been putting up with this and putting up with this and the strain by adding in COVID just makes it all too much and they're ready to bolt. And the third one, and I guess you could call this profound navel gazing, is that, of course, people have had serious illnesses. They have died from COVID. Uh, it raises the whole specter of, you know, this is my one and only life. 
and what do I want to do with it? And what's the meaning that I'm seeking? And how meaningful is my job itself? So one of the things I've been intrigued by with the great reshuffle is people have not merely moved laterally into another job. They've sometimes changed entire sectors. Their, their career has gone elsewhere. So I think these raise different issues for companies in terms of how to address them. Uh, you know, the first one, I guess, is more transactional. What's the pay package, the hours? Um, take that feedback. Use the exit interviews. Try to understand what were the things that to really ground people down or irk them the most. Uh, what's the latitude, if any, for the company to change some of these practices and uh, be a bit more fair? And I said that particularly when you've got uh, executives with very large pay packages and other people are looking at theirs and going, doesn't seem like it's very fair or equal. Uh, I happen to be a big fan of behavioral economic principles. And one of those is inequality aversion. When we feel that something's just not fair, uh, we will try to probably blow the whole thing up uh, just on that basis alone. Uh, department culture or corporate culture. Uh, that's an opportunity to start looking at the value system. I mean, a lot of companies have a mission statement that's on a plaque, maybe in the lobby. Uh, does it mean a whole lot to people? I think in most cases, no. Uh, but can you get to some operating cultural principles that people can buy into and be enthusiastic about? And the third one is feeling like your job has no meaning to it. Um, maybe the task is going to be rather mundane, but is there ways in which you can do it in collaboration with others because we can find meeting by uh, joining forces and, and having a, a social bonding? Is there ways in which you can get some more satisfaction from the job by mm -hmm. uh, opportunities to interact with the customer and, and feel like the value that you helped create for them? Um, I, I think those are some of the ways you can start to go after this. Thank you. And um, what about the whole um, sort of remote working that's continuing in, in many organizations? I mean, obviously some organizations, as we know, are being uh, told in on no uncertain terms that they will need to go back into the office, but many are still working remotely. And, you know, I think trust is one of the things that people have potentially struggled with, you know, particularly those organizations where they have worked on presenteeism and hours rather than actual output they struggled but had to deal with it during the the uh, lo lockdown. But uh, now are perhaps the people saying people should be going back to the offices, um, whereas other organizations do seem to be sort of further building on that trust and work remotely. That's quite difficult in terms of engaging people and keeping that trust and engagement moving forward. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, it's a fascinating and complex topic because you're, you're right. There's a lot of different models and companies may shift over time and think they're going to go with hybrid and then they're going to either force everyone back in the office or decide that remote's going to be okay after all. Um, some of the things that have intrigued me as, as possibilities for addressing this is, one, uh, creating a little bit more downtime conversation, a little more social glue. Uh, obviously, if you're in the office, you're going to have – little chats that happen, you know, in the, in the break room, in the hallways and so forth. Uh, if you just have a, a 15 minute call scheduled or half an hour mm -hmm. and it's boom, get on, handle the agenda and get off, you're, you're losing all of those other opportunities for some interactive glue connection between people. So uh, I like the idea that some people put forward that if there's a leader to the group, 
maybe they need to touch base with everyone individually, even if it's just five minutes uh, before a meeting or just, you know, on Fridays or something, see what's going on with people's lives, see if they have any concerns they want to address one-on-one, since obviously group dynamics sometimes preclude a level of intimacy uh, that can be helpful. Uh, I think it's also true that in some cases you might want to try a, uh, like the airlines do, a hub and, and spokes approach where just occasionally you need to bring people together. Uh, I have a, a nephew who works for um, the Mayo Clinic uh, here in Minnesota in the U.S. And uh, although he's rarely seen his colleagues, it's been almost entirely remote, they did decide finally that it was useful to uh, spend a little money and pull the team together um, for a two-day session just so they could have a little more interactive opportunities. Um, so I, I think those are important. Uh, I think the opportunity mm-hmm. for anonymous polls, uh, if you've got a team, you know, uh, obviously some people will feel like their vote matters more, or they're louder, or they have the right title. But, um, you know, just to make sure that, uh, cause, you know, in a, in a, in a private meeting or a, an in-person meeting, rather, you know, there might be an exchange of looks or ways in which you can kind of get a feel about how a decision is really going down with the group. Uh, that could be lost in a virtual setting. And um, so I, I think some chances for with anonymity to still put forward what's really going on for you or how you feel about the decision could be helpful. Uh, I love the term someone said, you know, postmortems aren't very helpful we need pre-mortems. We need to think about what's the downside to a decision we're about to make as well as the upside before we make it mm-hmm. uh, to avoid some, some problems. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you'd uh, written a, a number of books, including, uh, a, an up, I think it's an updated book, isn't it? The, the Emotionomics 2.0. It's a, a 15th anniversary edition of your classic book. There we go. Um, where, where did that come from, the, the fact that you wanted to uh, sort of republish it, update it? Um, and, and, you know, what's, what's new, what's different to, to, to what you would have written in there 15 years ago? Um, well, quite, quite a bit. Um, you know, when, when I wrote the book in 2008, I would say I was still very much a pioneer, <laughs> that it was uh, hard for a lot of people to, to uh, recognize or accept yet that the role of emotions was so vital. I think through the emphasis in recent years on the customer experience, on the employee experience, and the fact that emotions are so experiences are so inherently emotional uh, that we we give likes online and so forth. I think the cultures moved a long ways to toward embracing the role of emotions, and that's great. But I wanted to get to some specifics. So, for instance, I would say when I wrote Emotionomics, you know, published it back in 2008. Uh, really, the workforce was largely composed of, of boomers and Gen X, and now we've moved on to the millennials and Gen Z, and mm-hmm. there's some real changes that come with that. For one, not only is there this acceptance of emotions as important, uh, there's a real emphasis on the value system. Uh, are you as a company concerned about uh, a green planet being environmentally sustainable uh, what is the company's stance regarding diversity? Uh, you know, at least here in the States, uh, you know, the, the boomers were, were still pretty monolithically or largely uh, Caucasian. Uh, that is much less so as a statistic, uh, particularly by the time we get to Gen Z, 
which is you know truly multicultural. That's the majority. And they're quite given to activism often. So I think they're, one of the changes I therefore made in the book is I used to have branding as a chapter in the marketplace section. Um, and I realized it applied not just to uh, you know, your brand and moving products, but whether you're going to entice and retain employees. And so, uh, yes, I could have moved it to the, the workplace section, but in fact, I moved it way up front to the start of the book. And I put it before, right after a chapter on adaptability because that's what every company has to do nowadays. Um, so that's a couple of the changes. I would also say that uh, the importance of innovation has really grown uh, in the workplace. Uh, most executives will tell you their company depends on innovation. At the same breath, they'll tell you that uh, they have a deplorable uh, track record in terms of achieving more innovation. And yet the the way to get there in part is to recognize that you have to liberate people from fear of failure to actually get a return on your mistakes, ROM. Uh, and the second thing is you're going to get more innovation by allowing for more diversity, which could be literally by, by gender and by race and empowerment in that sense. But I also heard a term recently I loved, which is, do you unfortunately have cognitive uniformity? So people have different genders and ages and races and religions but there's a cultural ethos that means everyone's supposed to think alike and that shuts down the pace of innovation. So that, that's just at least a taste of why I felt the time was due to update the book. Mm, interesting. Thank you. I read something today that uh, said something like the, the HR agenda is now on the agenda of CEOs, <laughs> which I, I thought it's been a long time coming if it's only just now. But actually, I, I think it's, it's, probably, it's probably true that actually so much has happened in the last few years to change the workplace. But, but actually, that what we're talking about today is very much more on on the CEO's agenda without being for, you know, without it being forced, without it being you know reported on or or, or whatever else to to the shareholders, it, it does feel like finally <laughs> some of the the, the uh, more sort of soft areas, I guess you'd say, in terms of you know talk about soft skills and hard skills, you know the sort of the softer areas do seem to be much more important to CEOs now than they than they ever were. Uh, what do you think the the next few years are going to look like for CEOs and what they should be focusing on in organisations? for engagement and productivity and, and retention? Well, I think they're going to have to make a, a lot of changes. The former executive of Best Buy Corporation uh, said in his recent book that, truthfully, everything he learned in business school should be thrown out, that it wasn't sufficiently human-centric, and that there was <laughs> a need to really wake up to this reality that uh, – you know, you are leading people and you are selling to people and you're, you know, that's, that's what the whole game's about. And uh, financial metrics are fine and necessary. You need to play, stay solvent and profitable as a company. But uh, my God, you've got to make a shift. And I agree with you. This is a long time coming and almost ridiculous that it should take this long. Companies spend the, the bulk of their money on, on staff salaries. That should get their attention alone. But uh, quite honestly, the war for talent means that if they want innovation, for instance, they're going to have to attract the best talent. They're going to have to make those people satisfied. They're going to have to give those people an opportunity for input. 
So when I updated Emotionomics to Emotionomics 2.0, I added an extra chapter to the workplace uh, because I I totally agree with the premise of the question, which is we we need to really be looking at what's going on for employees. Uh, That's the great loss that companies uh, seem to endure and, and strangely accept right now. Uh, a killer statistic is that something like only 17% of workers consider themselves fully engaged on the job. Um, just imagine the opportunities uh, for greater productivity if you could change that number and move it upwards. Uh, emotion and engagement are intimately linked. If you go back to the root word for emotion, uh, it's motion. It's the move. It's to make something happen. Uh, so everything that an executive wants uh, they should be finding in what's unfortunately called human capital. Uh, but I'll, I'll put it another way. Uh, there's 18 inches between the head and the heart. And boy, does it seem like a profound gap for some executives. And if they're going to do anything, they need to recognize that gap and close mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, I mean, it's, it's interesting as you say that that's 17% statistic. You think, you know, that's, years after there's been you know many uh sort of different um movements if you like we call ourselves a movement in the uk you know talking about engagement and productivity and innovation and and all that sort of stuff and and i guess it for me it speaks to the fact that there's there's a massive gap between sort of knowing and understanding the importance of something and actually being able to do it (laughs) most of the time especially when you're dealing with people because they're unpredictable (laughs) And, and, and I think there's a chance here for executives to become emotionally literate, not just to kick this downstairs and tell the managers I've got to interact with their staff better. Uh, I think that the level at which the executives are responsible is for the corporate culture. And I just gave you this woeful statistic about the engagement level, you know, 16%. Uh, it's basically the same thing for do, do employees when surveyed feel that their corporate culture is what it should be. That's at 15%. Uh, I don't think it's by chance that those two numbers are, you know, essentially identical. Um, you've you've got to find a way that people feel like they can be themselves, to be human, um, you know, to admit to their emotions. I mean, people do experience disappointment uh, on the job, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and yet you can't address that question normally. No. So we're just moving into the last couple of minutes of the show. What, what's the last thing that uh, you want to leave our audience with? Oh, my God, there could be so many things. Let me just give a few specifics. Um, one is I think the whole onboarding process. If we're in a great <laughs> reshuffle, there should be a chance for uh, paying attention to the new talent you've attracted uh, to the workplace. Um, I love the idea that there should be a user manual. Every boss has their own proclivities, their biases, their habits, um, you know, give the employee a chance to understand up front in a one-page user manual who they're now dealing with in terms of how the department really actually operates and, and how the manager tends to think and give them a little bit of a, a support staff in terms of, especially say the first month that there's two or three people, including the manager who convenes, I, I'd suggest every Friday to see how it's going to make that transition quicker be, and better because uh, just as quick sometimes can be the person deciding they chose the wrong job and they exit uh, and, and they're gone. Uh, one other thing I, I might say is if you have a team, uh, so much of the work is done in teams these days, rather than imposing a boss 
on the team. Why not have people create video pitches and they, they audition for becoming the leader of the team based on their ideas, their agenda, their enthusiasm for the assignment at hand and let the, the team to be uh, vote anonymously on who they want to be the leader or at least rotate the leadership. I think those are some ways that you begin to introduce a bit more democracy uh, and levity, hopefully, into the workplace, because we could all use some. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. It's been so good talking to you today. Um, I appreciate you joining me, and uh, I think we got away with that uh, that delay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a good conversation. And just to let you know, next week, Joe Moffat will be back, and she's talking with Paul Glover, who's the No BS Leaders Legacy Coach, and they're talking about what the secret is to employee engagement. So join Joe next week. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.